1: Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done, and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July, I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. So, uh, so uh, let's start out with this. This kind of came to us late in the game, uh, but I'm going to try to make it work. The FCC has come out with a new announcement. I'm bringing my friend and, uh, and colleague, Chris DeLuca, on the line to help break this down for us. Chris, welcome into the program.
2: Hey, how are we doing?
1: Good. So let's start with this. You uh, you brought this to my attention, and I think it's very important because we know that there are a lot of people inside of the ask an OAS show listening audience while well, we're primarily linux focused show we try to cover self-hosted things and as the original open source as i've called it in the past is ham radio and this week uh the fcc has made a decision that is going to greatly impact i believe ham radio operators all over the place and i think it's going to be particularly detrimental to those trying to get into the hobby so you have had a little bit more of a chance to review this than i have what has the fcc come out and said
2: well, actually, um, this apparently—and uh, I just found this out very recently. Uh, uh, like you said, I, apparently it's getting some some traction in the community. Uh, this apparently came out sometime in 2017, but the end date is the end of this month, and essentially, the FCC is going to enforce a restriction on the sale of two-way radios that do not adhere to all of their um, their rules. The specific one that really falls into the lap of anyone new coming to Ham Radio is the Bofang, baofang UV five R. The the problem is the UV five R is also able to transmit and receive on the uh like the two way walkie talkie uh bands. Mm-hmm. Uh the so they F- don't restrict F- the FMR, frequencies the that you're
1: able to use with these radios.
2: Correct. They don't restrict well, they don't restrict all the frequencies. For instance, most um, most of your higher end United States made radios cannot transmit on fire and police bands. The Baofeng UV5R can. The, and that the, is falling
1: The 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 thing I think that I want to bring to everybody's attention, the reason I think that this is so important is because the Baofeng is if you're not familiar with the ham radio hobby, what you have to understand is like any like like in the Linux hobby, we have the Dells and the HPs and the Lenovo's of the world. In the radio world, that would be the Yezus and the Kenwoods and the ICOMs. Those are the high end, you know, professional everything you would want, all the bells and whistles made to extreme high quality. You expect a good device, but you pay for a good device, those kind of radios, right? And so to put it into perspective for you, a good handheld from Yezu is probably on the order of I don't know, $300, $350 for one of their higher end ones. Um, Maybe the starting entry point is maybe $170. The Baofeng does all of the same things that the Yezu does, except of course it's not built to the same quality standards. So there are, you know, there are some corners cut. So for example, the display isn't quite as sharp and the buttons aren't quite as responsive and the build quality isn't quite as good. But the price point is like $30. And so for people that are interested in getting into the hobby, it's a great way. When DeLuca passed his test, The first thing I said was, here, I'll just give you one because they're 30 freaking dollars. It's just not a big deal. And so to take that option away from amateur radio operators or potential new amateur radio operators, I think we have. I think we have a major problem on our hands.
2: Well, it, it, the, the the two lines in, in the PDF that really matter, um, it says uh, this certification requirement ensures that equipment complies with technical requirements to avoid causing interference to federal government operations, private licensed operations, and other authorized operations or equipments. Equipment that does not comply with the technical requirements cannot be certified and thus cannot be imported, advertised, sold, or used. So basically they're going to – I guess they're going to have to stop China from sending these radios over here or demand that they not be able to transmit on frequencies outside of uh, 2 meter or 70 centimeter, which essentially is what a, you know, a, um, Yesu or, uh, you know, any of the others for, you know, the handheld handy talkies. So, yeah, and, and it does because I did the same thing you did for me. I paid it forward. A buddy of mine was thinking about it. I said, tell you what, you passed your test. I'll send you a radio. So I did the same thing for him. You did for me.
1: You know the interesting thing, and I, I appreciate you doing that. I mean, that, that's great. That's how we spread a hobby, right? Is is being able to, to enable one another to, to move forward. But the, the problem that I see for Baofeng is that you know they are producing a radio that is truly a multi-purpose radio. For you know, I have two-way radios that we use at Speed Technologies, and that's how we communicate with you know between technicians and service calls and, and stuff like that. And the problem with or the the benefit to the Baofeng is that I can purchase a single radio and I can use it on ham frequencies, I can use it on business frequencies, and you can program it right from the radio. When you get into the professional radio world, if you're not if it's not if it's a ham radio, if it's a if it's an amateur radio, typically it can program it right from the front keypad. But if you purchase like a Motorola XPR or whatever their newest line is, you know, you're looking at a thousand bucks for a handheld. And then on top of that, you have to purchase an extraordinarily expensive software suite to program the radio that they will only sell to people who are Motorola dealers. So it essentially uh, is like the radio version of cloud uh, and a subscription service that you are you are tied to the hip to the uh, to the dealer. And Baofeng broke away from that and allowed anybody that wanted to use a radio legally to be able to do so. And of course, I'm sure what happened was people decided to use them illegally, and that's when the FCC decided they were going to come down and uh, and put the band hammer on. So I, I, my understanding is they've given them a certain amount of time to comply, and Baofeng has not made any changes. And so now this is going to go into effect, and uh, that's that's I'm I'm really sad. I'm sad that we're not going to have those inexpensive radios, and I. I'm gonna purchase a couple of them, maybe ten or fifteen of them, uh, because again, it's gonna send me back like three hundred bucks, and then I'll have some that I can give away. But when those are gone, I mean, that's kind of it. Now we're back to a minimum entry point of one hundred and fifty bucks again.
2: Well, the the how how this came to me, um, again, it's not, and I didn't even see it in the ham radio world, honestly. Uh, I saw it in the uh, the camping uh, backpacking. Sure. Dare I use the word prepper world? Because Mm -hmm. let let's face it, um, and and you know as well as I do, and anyone else in Ham, if you have a radio and you're in a life or death situation, you are legally allowed to transmit on any frequency to save your life. Right. With no, with no, you know. And so the the preppers, and I'm putting air quotes up, they talk about purchasing these cheap radios, even without a license. Put it in your backpack. If you have it, and there's a signal and something happens, you can save yourself. So, you know, that's gonna be a downside for, for those people as well. If, if, and again, this, this goes into effect at the end of this month.
1: Well, so I will see. I really appreciate you taking the time to help break this down for us, Chris. It's one of those things. Like I say, it doesn't completely, uh, it doesn't completely tie into anything to do with Linux per se, but it definitely appeals to the the, the rebel in us, the self hosted in us, the own your own infrastructure in us. Um, and so, I would encourage anybody to check out the ham radio hobby. And I'm just disappointed that it's now going to be a more expensive prospect. But I appreciate you taking the time to join us.
2: Absolutely, you're welcome.
1: 855-450-NOAH, that's 1-855-450-6624, email live at asknoahshow.com. James joins us from Grand Forks. Hey, James, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, Noah, it's great to talk to you again. Same. I'm looking for a uh, an easy ticketing system. I guess I, I uh, am part of a local organization here, and we have an email address, and when somebody has an issue or wants a question, they send an email to the email That email, in turn, gets kind of distributed amongst other members of our club. And not everybody uses email the same, and I kind of rely upon people to hit reply all so that everybody gets the response, and then everybody is aware that this issue is being handled, stuff like that. And our club is full of people who are non-geeks. And so the ticketing system is really, I'm looking for something that kind of populates a database, I guess, and just provides us a list, and when someone takes care of an issue, we tick it off, and, and we go about our day. Sure. Do you
1: know anything like that? So my first inclination is to tell you to check out OS Ticket. And the reason I say to check out OS Ticket is because I have used OS Ticket for a number of years and I couldn't be happier with it. And I have looked at other ticketing systems and I've tried them and I keep coming back to OS Ticket. And the the thing I want to emphasize about OS Ticket is this. I originally wrote my own ticketing system and I wrote my own ticketing system because I felt like I had a better way of doing tickets and like you I didn't want something super complex I wanted to create a ticket I wanted to there was a specific set of features I wanted to get out of a help desk system and I didn't want a bunch of other bloat because it didn't apply to us we had four people I had to communicate with it. And when we first switched to OS Ticket, I was a little nervous. And what I found was you can use OS Ticket with just the create a ticket, reply to a ticket, and allow people to email into a, a you know like an email address. So we have uh, a certain email address that we give out to clients that pay us for contract support. They can send an email to that email anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And what happens is it automatically creates a ticket based on the subject line and the body of that email. And so it's a really great resource for our customers. We didn't use that feature when we first started using os ticket we would create a, a a ticket and we would we would document the information we would close it. that's the only function we used and os ticket is amazing at getting out of the way and so there's a lot of other features that we have since started to use and what was nice was we started some with something very very simple and used it you know very cursory but when we started to look for more additional features we found that they were already there in os ticket and we didn't have to move to a different system so for those reasons i really like os ticket if you open up OS Ticket and you look at the UI and you say, "Yeah, it's just not for me. I need something more modern. I need something cleaner. I need something more approachable. I would check out Zamod, Z-A-M-M-O-D, and you can find it at zamod.org, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes. But Zamod, the thing I like about it is it is structured a lot like Slack. And so if you have other employees that have used Slack, or if you have other people on your team that have used Slack, they're going to feel very at home with Zamod. It has what they call activity streams and then on the side they have what they call uh, you know their dashboard and their and their overviews which are kind of like channels uh, you, you'd have to see the screenshot to see what i'm talking about but i think it does a very excellent job of representing the the, the way that we would design an application today if we were designing a help desk app but the other side of that is much like many of the applications we have today, we have removed many of the options that make them flexible and powerful in favor of making them pretty and approachable. And so you have to make a decision. Do you want it to be more approachable and, and pretty? Or do you want the opportunity to expand it to a more robust system if and when you ever want those features? And of course, I can't answer that for you. Only you can, but those would be the two I would, I would start. And then if you, if there are some other ones, but I I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say I'm over the air because I I don't have any real confidence in them, with the exception of OTRS. But OTRS is a very complex system, more complex than OS Ticket, so I don't think it really fits your needs.
0: Oh, okay. So are any of those the OS Tickets or the Zamad? Are they self uh, hosted?
1: Both are self-hosted, both off... Well, I know OS Ticket does. I don't know if Zamod does. Uh, OS Ticket offers a um, a paid version that you can... They call it OS Ticket Pro, and they'll host it for you. Uh, so it's like a software-as-a-service thing. Zamod does not do that based on my understanding. Nope. Uh, I can't find it anywhere on their site if they do. However... Um, that's where a company like Speed Technologies would be able to help you if you wanted it to be a... Uh, a, a software as a service kind of a thing, that's that's the kind of thing that we would do at Speed. We would say, sure, we would be happy to maintain that instance for you for a low monthly fee, and uh, and you could pay us to do that. So that's another way to approach that problem. But um, I, I know for sure OS Ticket has a, a paid version that you can do, and then you just pay them and you use it as a service, which, if you wanted to try it out, would be a great way to start. Although both of them, I will tell you, are fairly inex- are fairly easy to get up and running. And so... If I woke up in your shoes, if you're smart enough to call this program, you're smart enough to spin up a droplet and and you know then your then your quote unquote monthly cost goes to like five bucks a month, right
0: right I'm a collector of droplets, so I, i'm <laughs> <a collector, laughs> me so <I> too <laughs> it and running,
1: so. awesome awesome
0: but all right anyways, that is great. I got a couple of good starting points, so uh thank you very much
1: great I appreciate your call eight fifty five four fifty Noah, that's eight five five four five zero six six two four Corey, welcome into the Ask Noah Show.
0: Hey, uh, um I just, I'm about to be uh, going to a whole different field. And I knew you were talking about Lightworks a while back. And I'm looking at uh, trying to find an open source uh, TV and movie script writing software. Mm-hmm. I'm at a, a complete end. Okay. And I've almost decided to stay with Fade In, but I thought I would call you if you had any leads or anything. I know about Flibly, but that software has not been updated since 2012. And so I'm at a complete loss.
1: Um, the two did, uh, w- What was the other software that you said you were familiar, but hasn't been updated? tribly tribly trlby yeah that's what that was going to be I my recommendation did. the only t- the only two open source uh, uh software that i well actually not even open source because i faden is not open source is it it's just it just happens to run on linux but the only it two it
0: just happens to run on
1: linux right i i don't know of any i, I first of all so Having used both Tribly and Fade in, I will tell you that fade in is twice the softer that Tribly is yeah, software license aside um, aside from well that and the other thing that I like about FadeIn is that it runs on Linux and it runs on Android, and so there's you know depending on where you 're at, you can work on that on the, that screenwriting stuff I, yeah. I would I would tell you to stick yeah. with, I would st- tell you to stick with fade in because not only am I not aware of any alternatives, the alternatives that I am aware. I'm not aware of any better alternatives and the alternatives that I am aware of are vastly inferior to in. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for the the call. 855-450-NOAH That's 1-855-450-6624 The email, live at asknoahshow.com We'd love to have you uh, take your calls, uh, your emails. So this week is is a great week to be a Linux user. Huawei has begun to ship the makebook with Linux. Now, Huawei is having a battle royale of sorts with the United States government. And um, so the company is currently, I believe, 30 days into a 90 day reprieve from the U.S. Commerce Department's ban, which would prevent them from doing business with U.S.-based companies, U.S.-based companies to include companies like Microsoft and Google. Now that's good news for us in Linux land, and it's bad news for the folks at Microsoft and Google. Why? Well, because this essentially prevents Huawei from utilizing Windows or Android, because Microsoft obviously makes Windows and Google obviously makes Android. So on smartphones, Huawei has opted to replace Android with Harmony OS. Now, <laughs> They claim that Harmony OS is an open source alternative and replacement to Android. However, a cursory search of Google reveals that it doesn't appear to be as open source as they claim it is. So I reached out to Dalton Durst and asked him, Hey, you work on a lot of mobile platforms. You pay attention to the sphere. His Harmony OS is open source as they claim it to be. And he dug into it a little bit and didn't spend a ton of time, but he looked into it and said, you know what? I can't find the source card anywhere. So I don't know what they're talking about when they say it's open source. Now, to throw Huawei a bone, maybe the source code is there and just Dalton and I couldn't find it. But it sure seems like Harmony OS is not, a, as not as open as they claim it is. Putting that aside for a second, Harmony OS would not be practical for the desktop anyway. And that's really where my passion is. And I assume if you're listening to the show, that's part of where your passion is, is seeing Linux succeed on the desktop. So Huawei has begun selling their MateBook 13, their MateBook 14, and the MateBook x Pro with Deepin Linux. Now, if you're not familiar with Deepin, Deepin is the Chinese based distro based on Debian. I have uh, I have used a Matebook. I don't own one, but I had a chance to play with one. And I will tell you that the Huawei Matebook is an absolute premium product. And like many premium products, it carries a premium price tag. So the build quality is fantastic. In fact, I would put the build quality of the MateBook up there with the just shy of the MacBook and the XPS, and probably if we're talking about aesthetics and overall build quality, I would probably put it up past the ThinkPad, unless we started talking about durability, in which case, obviously, the ThinkPad is going to reign supreme. But I think this underscores a far more important lesson. It's a good story. It's a good day. Anytime. A company chooses Linux, right? And I think that there are going to be ramifications that are going to follow this story. Rather or not, the U.S. decides to start doing business with Huawei again. Rather, Huawei decides to start doing business with Microsoft or Google. I think the quote-unquote damage is done. I just don't think it's damage. I think it's going to be a good thing for us. You know who you can thank for this, though? Do you know who you can thank for Huawei shipping these computers with Linux? Interestingly enough, it's not the Chinese government. It's not the U.S. government. It's not Google. It's not Microsoft. It's the developers. It's the developers that have continued to work on the Linux kernel and continued to work on Linux as an operating system as a whole that provided a very soft landing spot for a company in need. And I don't I cannot stress that enough as a IT consultant who spends a disproportionate amount of his time going into client and client environments, looking at the way they're doing something and telling people, hey, there is a different way to achieve the same goal. You can spend less money you'll have less vendor lock-in, you'll have an increase in reliability and security, and it can run on the same hardware you already have. That kind of soft landing spot, you can't put a price on. And because that soft landing spot exists, Huawei, instead of dumping a bunch of development effort into Harmony OS, which is probably what they would have done had Linux desktop not been a choice for them to land on, instead, they're going to ship Linux on their premium computers. Now, I've spent some time on Reddit and I've spent some time on a couple other forums looking at how this is kind of playing out. And it's interesting because there are a lot of people that are looking at this and saying there's no way people are going to buy this MateBook with Linux. They're just going to they're going to buy the stupid thing and they're going to install Windows on it. And I don't disagree that there's probably a measurable portion of the population that's going to purchase a makebook, wipe Linux off of it and install Linux, uh, install Windows on it. I acknowledge that. The other side of that, and the thing that I think that the Internet trolls are not accommodating for is, well, two things, really. First, when people go to purchase a premium laptop, the reason they're willing to spend 17, 18, 19, $2,000 on a laptop is because they want an experience to be delivered to them. They don't want to have to install Windows. If they wanted to install Windows by hand, they probably wouldn't be purchasing a premium computer to begin with, right? Unless they're just interested in the hardware, in which case there are far better options, right? You can purchase a Dell XPS with Windows 10. You can purchase the Lenovo IdeaPad with Windows 10. As far as I understand, you can even run, you can dual boot some of the Macs to run Windows 10. Not that I have ever done it, so, but I understand that it's possible to do that with things like Bootcamp. So there are premium machines that you can purchase, that you can just run Windows 10 either out of the box or you can install it yourself in the case of Apple, right? If somebody is going out of there and the MateBook is not, it's a good premium product. It's not that good. It's not better than the Dell XPS. It's certainly not better than some of the Lenovo Ultrabooks. So the, or the Samsung Ultrabooks, there's some very, very good machines out there. And the MateBook really doesn't come, doesn't exceed the expectations of any of those. And so from that perspective, I think that these people that are saying the only chance that Huawei has to succeed is to ship these computers with Windows, I think the exact opposite is true. I think the premium notebook market is flooded with premium computers that are pre-shipped with Windows 10. The HP is at the Envy, is that really nice gold, super slick UltraBook that HP is making. Every manufacturer has their own version of the MacBook knockoff. And let's not let's let's call a spade a spade. The Matebook is nothing more than a Mac and a Chinese MacBook knockoff. It's just a very good Chinese MacBook knockoff. I think the opposite is true. I think that companies are looking for a premium laptop. That has a vested interest in Linux, because I think where there is a void in the market is in the Linux premium laptop sphere. If you want a good, solid laptop that runs Linux, you would buy a System76 or Lenovo. If you want a premium ultra, you know, uh, aluminum build, uh, Thunderbolt connection, those kind of things. Now you start to look at things like the Dell XPS, you start to uh, look at things like buying an HP Envy and then Installing Linux, which to my understanding works fairly well. And then you start to look at things like Matebooks. And if you can have a, uh, a, a developer firm that is looking to purchase 500 laptops and they want them all to run Linux. And if you talk to most developers, they're very comfortable running on Linux. They're the. I think that's the market that's interested in something like the MateBook. And if you pair the MateBook with something like Linux, now all of a sudden you have a product that literally doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. A premium laptop focused completely on Linux. Now, albeit not by their choice, they were forced into it, but they're focused on it nonetheless. The other thing I think this does is it sends a message to other hardware manufacturers, particularly those that don't exist inside the United States. And that message is this don't rely exclusively on the United States. Don't rely exclusively on Microsoft because if a trade dispute comes up, you're going to be cut off at the knees. And what's interesting is Microsoft probably doesn't care because Windows is less valuable to them as it is to Huawei. The two articles I came across today when I was researching this one was interestingly enough talking about how Windows 10 can't be used in broadcast environments because they can't rely on Windows 10 Uh, due to these unscheduled, unwanted updates that require taking the system offline. The second article that I came across was this article talking about empowering Huawei to continue doing business in the absence of U.S.-based companies like Google and Microsoft. So what does that tell us? It tells us that Microsoft doesn't even believe in the future of Windows. And they've almost said as much coming out talking about how they're pushing customers towards Azure because they think that their cloud, and maybe they're right, They think that their cloud infrastructure, which, by the way, is based on Linux, has a higher likelihood of succeeding than Windows. Windows is a it's a destroyed brand. Nobody trusts it. And Microsoft is hip to that. And I think they're starting to make decisions that reflect that. So Microsoft isn't going to fight for Huawei's business. Other manufacturers are going to see this and they're going to look at Huawei's success or failure and make their own decisions based off of it. And so I, for one, intended to purchase a Matebook preloaded with Linux, assuming I can get one here in the United States. Because it sends a message to hardware manufacturers it, that this can be a successful product, that this is a successful market, and that you don't need Windows to, to to sell a successful laptop. Developers are very happy on Linux, but you know who else is happy on Linux? Anybody that uses uh, software exclusively based on in, in web-based platforms. and if you look at the hospitality industry, if you look at the financial industry, if you look at the healthcare industry, many of these industries, are moving towards web-based software platforms. It's easier to maintain. It scales to both. You can target both mobile. You can target Windows. You can target Mac. Incidentally, you can accidentally target Linux. And so because they have these platforms that are available to people and they don't need to run any specific software, it means that as long as they have Chrome or Firefox, it's going to work just fine for them. And so I could see the makebook Winding up in those kind of situations as well, because, again, you get an increase in security, you get an increase in uh, threat protection from viruses and malware and, and those sorts of things. And now you have a premium build product that you can pull out of the box and use it. And if there's one complaint I've heard from developers, it's that they don't want to take the time to load an operating system on a laptop. They want the laptop to be delivered with them or the laptop to be delivered to them ready to go. So I think that's a good day to be a Linux user. I really think so. 855-450-NO, it's 855-450-6624. James, Detroit Lakes, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon.
3: Hey, Noah, long-time listener, first-time caller. Question for you. It's more hardware. I have Mm -hmm. a family that has vacation property. They have two units that are about 300 feet from each other in Sandy Beach-type soil.
1: Okay.
0: I
3: was trying to network one to the other. The ISP provides, you know, like a cable doxus. One gigabit would be the fastest. You know, I was thinking maybe Cat, you know, five or six for direct burial, or maybe RG six with the converters on the end for coax to Cat. Um, or, there's not really good line of sight between them for wireless. I just want to get your opinion. I'm partial to build, and I really didn't see anything in their catalog They really did hmm. my application.
1: How far apart are these? Three hundred feet. And did you say there is? Uh, did you say it's sand, or is there actual? Is there solid ground somewhere?
3: You go deep enough, it's you have dirt. Um, and I can dig. I can do direct burial. And actually, you know, fixed point-to-point point would probably be best.
1: Yeah, you know, here, here. So where I'm at with it is the first thing I, I, I immediately went to, and, and I, I, you have apparently looked into this and decided against it because of the line of sight issue. But the, you know, the nano beams—they're 97 bucks on Amazon, and will get you a gigabit link from 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 point to point. So that's my first choice because it's very inexpensive, super easy to set up, probably about a one-hour install, right? uh and and you'd have a very reliable connection we've done that from time to time it works very well uh if that's not an option because of line of sight then the next best thing i could recommend is to purchase uh some tough cable and the nice thing about tough cable is it has a jacket that is was designed to i don't know you know withstand tanks from world war 2 i mean the stuff is thick right and, uh, and so it's very, very weatherproof. It also includes a grounding rod inside of it. So there's a little copper rod that runs from one end of the wire all the way through the spool, and you purchase special ends that have a, a grounding loop on the end of those ends so it can shunt um, spurious electricity that may come in contact with those wires. And so it makes it ideal for bearing. And so anytime we install security cameras outdoors or we've been to a couple RV parks or, or recreational parks where we've installed some access points, that's typically what we'll do is bury tough cable. And then we bring it up and we treat it just like a utility. It would, it would be ju- we treat it just like a cable company would treat coax or a or fiber Um, and, but it's, but it's cat five. The reason I asked about the distance is of course with, with tough cable, you have a hard 300 meter limit. Um, and so if, you know, if it was any, if it was any more than that, that just simply wouldn't be an option without putting a switch in the middle. But if I woke up in your shoes, that's totally what I would do. I'd grab myself a spool of tough cable and I'd go bury some of it.
3: Do they have a you know off the top of your head if they have a Cat six or anything faster just to future proof it.
1: Um, that's a great question. I wonder if they have Cat six. Cat six tough cable. Here's here's unprofessional for you. I'll just Google it right right, right on the air. I'm not seeing it. It looks like uh, CDW has. Uh, they they just call it uh, they just call it carrier grade network cable. How stupid is that? Um, I'll do a little bit of research and if I can find one, uh, I will link it to you. But the most I'm seeing right now is, and what we've always purchased is cat five E. So I don't think, um, they offer cat six also nailer in the chat room who, uh, who has helped me with a couple of Unify installs, uh, confirms that they only sell a cat five E. So you might be stuck with that. Um, uh, t- frankly, I wouldn't be too worried about it if I were you, because you're, I mean, you're going to have to get. Uh, you're going to have to get some massive internet speeds before that's going to be an issue, unless, of course, you're you know dealing with file transfers back between the two sites.
3: Yeah, probably not so much as video streaming, you
1: know. Um, now I, I agree. I agree. It would be I ideal if be we could get Cat six people. then. Well, here's here's. I'll tell you what. I'll give you another option. Here's the other option. It's substantially more expensive and about ten times the amount of work. But what you could do, uh, you could bur- You could just bury, um, you know, some conduit and then run. Just regular network cable in there. We actually did that at a radio station it was an interesting situation. The, they were going to move a uh, one to, from one building to the other, and they, the, the way that it all worked out, one piece of equipment couldn't be moved, and so we had to get network access from one building to the other. and the way that they went about doing that was bearing a, a, a conduit pipe from one to the other uh, from one building to the other, and they just ran regular cat uh, cat six right from one to the other and fiber. Uh, so that would be the second way to do it. It's just bearing, bearing cable is a function of, you know, unfolding the earth, tucking the cable in, then folding it back over. When you start getting into bearing uh, uh, conduit now, all of a sudden, you know, there's, you've got, you've, especially in our neck of the woods, we got to start dealing with frost and all sorts of things. So it it, it turns into a substantially larger job, but it is possible. And it, you want to talk about future proofing, if you ever did want to pull fiber now it just becomes a function of grabbing the pull string that you would run through when you first lay your pipe. And, uh, and of course, every time you pull a new wire, then you would pull a new pull string. But um, the, the as far as future proofing, if you ever decided you want to upgrade to fiber, it's just a function of pulling fiber line and then putting uh, SFP transformers on, on each end, and you'd be good to go.
3: Okay. No, that sounds good. I appreciate the advice.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the call. 855 450 Noah. That's 855-450-6624. So last week we talked about the Pine phone and um, Dalton pointed this out to me last week. He said, the Pine 64 is not a software engineering company. The developer devices that are shipping with a minimal operating system that we use to validate the hardware, nothing more. Pine 64 is a company whose owners have an excellent tie to Chinese manufacturing community. Coming together to make hardware for the Linux community who wants to put software on it. So that is to say it's not a my understanding from Dalton's um, breakdown of that is it's not a feature complete phone. It's just a piece of hardware that you can load your own load your own operating system on. But guess what? I'm very much into the past few months or past few weeks. Loading my own operating system onto my phone, the Sony Xperia open device. The thing that I love so much about it is, yes, it comes with Android, so I can use it out of the box if you wanted to do that. But the real advantage there is the fact that you are capable of loading whatever operating system you want onto the device. And to me, that makes it a much more useful investment in technology, because now it becomes very much similar to my Lenovo ThinkPad. I didn't buy a ThinkPad because I wanted a Windows laptop. I bought a ThinkPad because I wanted a high-quality computer. I want to choose what operating system I put on my high-quality computer. I don't want the manufacturer to be thinking about that. I just want them to focus on building good hardware. Now, it would be ideal if I could order that hardware with paired with a operating system of my choice. But if that's not practical for any reason, I would prefer they just ship it empty, and I will load it with the operating system I want because whatever they choose is probably not the right one. It's one of the things that I have believed about system 76 customers for a long time is that when you order a laptop for system 76 and this is changing a little bit but I you know the vast majority of people that I I see running system 76 hardware have reloaded the operating system with the distro of their choice and to system 76 is credit they're very very supportive of people who want to load alternative distributions now they're not going to go they're not going to bend over backwards to try to accommodate something that they didn't plan for but for the, They will make a reasonable effort to ensure you have a, a, a good experience. And as you might imagine, if you build a system based on Ubuntu, guess what? Practically every distro under the sun is going to run on it just fine. And they do. Um, so I, I don't think this is a bad thing. It doesn't dissuade me from purchasing the Pine phone. In fact, if anything, it increases my interest in the Pine phone. Well, this week I got more good news because the Pine 64 people are now releasing a smartwatch called the Pine Time. First thing I want to point out, Pine64 themselves says this is a side project, so this is not a high priority for them. And I appreciate them saying that right off the bat because, it, again, they prove once again that they get it. They understand how to set expectations for their users, and they're doing a very good job of managing those expectations. The most important thing that Pine64 is making is their laptop. That's the thing that I think is the most interesting to me. It's also the thing that I find to be most useful for most people. It's also the thing that I think they're capable of doing the best job at because we don't have a premium arm laptop. And this is a premium arm laptop with a very low price tag. So it checks a ton of boxes, and I'm super happy about that. Next important in line after the laptop would be the phone because, again, I still don't believe that we really have... A Sony Xperia, not to take anything away from their open devices, it's a premium phone uh, that is has a low enough price point, but Sony does not exactly have a open track record. Um, th- I blame Sony for a lot of the DRM mess that we're in. So, uh, you know, I they're doing a good job. I don't want to take away from that. But at the end of the day, I trust the folks at Pine 64 more than I trust the folks over at Sony. I trust the people at Pine because they're involved in the community, and I think that's great. So the second priority, I think, should be the phone, and it is. But then after that, they are saying that they want to enter into the smartwatch realm. Now, this week on Destination Linux, we had a conversation about this, and I was asked, point blank, do you think that they are overextending themselves? And no, I don't think they're overextending themselves at all. First of all, I think they've done an excellent job of prioritizing their values. I, I, secondly, I think they've done an even better job of communicating their priorities to their customers so we know what to expect. And I said this last week and I meant it. These guys are the textbook model for how to communicate and set expectations for your potential customers. They don't have a shipping date, but they, do, they did release a couple of specs as well as a price tag that you're going to fall out of your seat over. Here's what we know about the pine time so far. First of all, it's $25. Bucks. You need a moment to collect yourself? It's $25. Bucks. To put that into perspective for you, Apple's new smartwatch is $400. So, <laughs> over 10 times the price that of the Pine Time. Now, is the Apple Watch going to be vastly more powerful? Is it going to have vastly more features? Is it going to have a vastly better build quality? Probably all of those things. But, Is it going to be hackable? Is it going to be something that you can play with? Is it going to be something that you can build upon? No. And you know what I found out? All of the people that I know that purchased a Pebble were very happy with that watch. How Pebble couldn't make that business model work when they had had a successful crowdfund, they had a loyal following, they had people that were interested in the product, and they still couldn't make it work is beyond me. But I think this is going to be the next replacement of the Pebble. In fact, I think it's a perfect replacement for a Pebble. It's the perfect smartwatch for somebody who wants to tinker, somebody who wants to play. If you want a perfect device right out of the box, maybe this is not the watch for you. But you know what? I'm not really interested in a perfect watch out of the box. I'm kind of interested in something that I can play with because I don't really take smart watches seriously, if I'm being honest with you. I have enough problems trying to focus my attention and getting notifications from my laptop and my smartphone. I don't need an additional device to start, you know, giving me information. The second thing is a privacy aspect, right? Pine 64, because they are deeply involved in the community and because they've been so open and transparent, I completely trust them. Uh, with my data. And so if they design a a watch, first of all, we know it's going to be open source. And so we're going to be able to audit the code, but above and beyond that, I actually, even if they shipped it with code, I would trust whatever code they, they put on there one because it's open source, but two, because they have been so open and honest and transparent about what it is they're trying to accomplish here. And so I'm not giving them a free ride on any of this. Frankly, I'll be honest with you. I'll be the first person to say, I think a $25 smartwatch is a tough sell. I think that's a really tough sell. There's I think there's a a boatload of engineering that is going to go into this. And I understand that they're using a prebuilt chassis. But still, there's a there's a boatload of engineering. There's a boatload of software engineering. There's a boatload of marketing that is going to go into making a smartwatch. And I think at at two hundred and fifty dollars, this would be a fantastic deal. And I think a probably a far more sustainable business model for them. But you know what? I will give them a pass. I will give them a uh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And see if they can bring a $25 smartwatch to the market. If they can pull it off, it will be a miracle. And you know what? If they can't, hey, you know what? They said it wasn't a high priority and they said they were going to give it a shot. And And if it ends up being $250, I would still buy it. Because I appreciate the fact that they were honest and open about it. But going off of what Dalton told me last week, this is going to be the watch for hackers to have. Right. Because we have a phone from them that are that that is the phone for hackers to have. Here's going to be the watch that is going to be for hackers to have. Now, here's what we know about it so far. It's going to come with a 20 millimeter band. It also is going to include a heart rate monitor and it is going to include a charging dock. The charging dock alone, I paid I bought a charging dock for my Sony Xperia so it can sit up at night at my bedstands. I can just set it down on a uh, on a charging dock rather than having to fish around for a cable. And the charging dock alone was twenty nine dollars. So if I can get the smartwatch along with the charging dock for $25, I'm practically giving the thing away. And every one of you better get out there and buy it. I, I know I'm going to. 25 bucks anybody can afford 25 bucks. In fact, it, assuming this makes it to market, because again, they're open and honest about the fact that it's a low priority. Assuming it makes it to to market, I'll go as far as to say we're going to buy five of them and we'll give them away here on the air. Or four of them. We'll spend $100. bucks. we will give 100 bucks to them and we'll give them away on the air to people. Because I think it's a cool product. And I think it's something that you guys would absolutely love. So go ahead and check out the pine time from the pine 64 people An article. I don't want to spend a lot of time on because there's really not a whole lot here. We don't know a lot yet, but the next version of CentOS is about to be released September 24th. Um, is the, the, is the announced date and you will be able to download CentOS 8 in all of the usual, all the usual places. Interestingly enough, I keep running into people on the CentOS forums and, and elsewhere that say things like, man, I just installed CentOS 7. And if that isn't the life of a Red Hat user, I don't know what is, right? We install these operating systems and we basically expect them to last 10 years. And so about the time that we are moving from one software version to the next, the newest one comes out. It's not uncommon for me to, at all to skip a couple of, uh, a, a couple of iterations or software versions to get to where we need to be. And so I routinely still come across some rel five installations and we, we bump them up to six and then seven. Um, and now it sounds like we're going to be able to do that with eight. So kudos to them for, uh, for following just a couple of months shy of red hat. Recentos eight is going to be pretty cool. And there's a, if you, if you, if you missed it, go back and listen to some of our red hat coverage back in uh, May. Uh, we had a chance to head out to Red Hat summit and chat with some folks from Red Hat and they did an absolutely fantastic job with RHEL 8 it's a great release and so I expect nothing short of an amazing release for CentOS as well Mozilla is added again with what they're calling the Firefox private network and um, it started as an add-on then they just discontin- well, not discontinue but then they revamped it and they started a test pilot program quote The Firefox private network is an extension in which it provides a secure encrypted path to the web to protect your connection and your personal information anywhere and everywhere you use your Firefox browser. Now, there are many ways that you use your personal information and your data can be exposed. Online threats are everywhere, whether it's through a phishing email, a data breach. You may often find yourself taking advantage of the free Wi-Fi at the doctor's office, the airport or a cafe. There can be a dozen people using the same network, casually checking the web, getting social media updates. This leaves your personal information vulnerable to these people who may be lurking, waiting to take advantage of the situation to gain access to your personal info. Using the Firefox private network, this helps protect you from hackers lurking in plain sight on public connections. Now, I want to stop right here and just say a properly configured Wi-Fi network should limit, not eliminate, but should limit the attack vector. If you're doing proper client isolation, that means on the network side itself, there, there aren't a lot of attack vectors, okay? The, the the attack vectors that remain are in the fact that you are sending data wirelessly. And if you're using a pre-shared key, that means everybody's using the same pre-shared key unless they've updated to WPA4, which is a whole other mess. But the, that's where the big vulnerability comes in in Wi-Fi. And as Bo Weaver will tell you, a security expert we've had here on the show – it's pretty simple to spoof an access point. So, I want to be clear. I don't. I. I. I don't really think that that the the problem is in the network stack. I think that certainly there are some coffee shops that are not going to use best networking practices, but I'm far more concerned about the security of Wi-Fi itself than I am the actual data traversing the network. Right. Vast majority of sites are using SSL. And a lot of us are using VPN technology um, in addition to that. So I, I, I'm not exactly sure who this is targeting, but well, actually, that's not true. I do know who this is targeting, but I just think it's a limited set of people that it's targeting. Now, the key features of Firefox private network are protection on public Wi-Fi access points. Um, they say whether you're waiting in your doctor's office, the airport or working from your favorite coffee shop, your connection to the Internet is protected. The Internet uh, protocol address the ip address is hidden so it's harder to track you your ip address and then they explain what an ip address is but this idea is that you're funneling your traffic through essentially a mozilla proxy and then they are going to funnel that that traffic back out to the internet the cool thing is that they're making it available as a toggle switch so you can just click on the browser extension and turn it on or off at any time this is what I think Mozilla is really doing right because they are making technology approachable to normal people, normal people as easy as it is to sign up for private internet access. All you have to do is go to AskNOAShow.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, click on the little green icon and sign up for an account to private internet access. And that's going to thank them for supporting the ask Noah show. In addition, they're going to give you a little bash script that you run on your Linux box and you'll get a nice little UI that just says connect to VPN, disconnect from VPN. So, PIA makes it very simple to implement uh, robust security to get onto the Internet. But you know what? These guys are making it even easier because now you don't have to sign up for a service. You don't have to download any additional software. Essentially, you just add an extension. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if this is later integrated as a core feature of Firefox. They are making security approachable to the average person. I think they're doing an absolutely fantastic job of this, and I uh, huge props to Mozilla for 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 their work on this and their continued efforts to protect user privacy. It's one of the reasons I continue to use the Firefox browser, and I refuse to use Chrome, even though there may be some slight performance advantages in Chrome. Although it's the uh, the distance between those two is getting thinner. A few weeks ago, on on Destination Linux, I had talked about a Bell system and. It got way more attention than I ever thought it would. It was just kind of a passing comment, but I've had people reach out to me via email. I've had people reach out to me in Telegram. I've had people posting in groups, so I thought I would just take a couple moments and break down what this bell system is. So A few months ago, my kids started back up in school, and one of the things I noticed that was very challenging for me to deal with is that the school clock doesn't, for some reason, because it's some antiquated system, I'm sure, is not synced to any sort of network time protocol, and thus, it's consistent, but it's consistently off. While well, we can work with consistent but consistently off, I had to do some back time calculation. And so the bell system started with this. I went to purchase a system that would play a tone at a specific time, which is what the school bell system does. It lets the kids know that it's time to start school. It lets the kids know that it's time for lunch, and it lets the kids know that it is time to get out from school. Well, I wanted to add A third bell and the third bell was what time do I have to leave my house so that the kids will arrive at school at the exact right time so they're not standing outside the door in 70 degree weather waiting to get in and also that they are not late for school. And so I looked at what the Bell system that the school had. I found a modern alternative that had a, a controller, and it, it spit out a sound thing, and the, the whole nine yards was just a system you bought. But it was like $450. Like, I'm not spending $450 for a stupid thing that plays a, a, a tone, right? I can build this easy in my basement. So I purchased a Raspberry Pi, loaded it up with Volumio, and I used some curl commands, which Volumio accepts to... Control functions like play, play a given playlist, stop the playback, turn on or off the repeat function and clear the queue. And those curl commands I used to play my bell. Uh, I, I, I suck that up into a script and then I used a cron job to trigger volume EO to play uh, those tones. And that would that will let my kids know, hey, it's time to end me. It's time to leave for school. Well, after using that for a couple of weeks, I realized that this can actually be a far more powerful tool because one of the things I'm notoriously terrible at is I have a very busy day and the only way I can get through my busy day is by following a time schedule to the T. Now at work, we have a ticket system and a scheduling system. And so service calls are booked in specific, you know, two hour time increments. And so it becomes very easy for me to know when I have to leave a service call to go to the next one, whether we're done or not. I have allotted you this much time to fix your issue. If it's bigger than that, um, I either have to get another technician to go to my next service call, and I'll stay here and fix it, or I'll have somebody else come pick up where I left off, and I'll go to the next one. But one way or another, I have to move on, or the whole day gets thrown out, right? And we've gotten very, very good at being able to estimate this is going to be a one-service call, or this is going to take the whole day, or this is going to take the whole week. We're pretty good at that. But – but outside of work i really don't didn't have a time management system i was basically at the mercy of whatever i whatever i happened to remember that day or whatever i happened to set little alarms on my phone and it wasn't working very well and so what i did was i first i downloaded a very subtle tone um, instead of just a loud obnoxious single tone like the school uses a, a nice little chime and i used the set volume feature to be able to play that that to, that That nice little chime at specific times. And so I set a time for to to wake me up in the morning. I set a time for me to get in the shower. I set a time for me to get out of the shower because typically that's my that's my thinking time. That's my time where I kind of compose my thoughts and get ready for the day is while I'm in the shower. And I think about that. The problem is oftentimes I drift out and all of a sudden I look up and I'm like, oh, man, I'm 20 minutes later. I thought I was going to be. Um, And so I I like a reminder for that. I like a reminder to let me know, hey, it's time to again to take the kids out to school or to pick them up. And so we've incorporated these little uh, subtle chimes throughout our day inside of our house and uh, through using Volumio and it works very, very well. And I found it to be one of the most awesome things I've ever done in my life to improve productivity. And uh, I, I, like I said, I just casually mentioned it and people have been asking me about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to include the curl scripts that I am using. They're very rude. Uh, they're very crude, but I'm going to include them in the show notes this week at podcast.snoahshow.com. So if you want to set something like this up or you're interested in seeing how I do it, of course it can be extended beyond a simple tone system right you could use it to script various playback for music or you could you could write an entirely different app to control volumio or com- control volumio from a command line so there is a, the, your your imagination is really the limit one thing that i want to point out though that i ran into is there's no way currently through the ui to schedule a there has it has an alarm function built into volumio but you can't have the volumio alarm function Play a given web radio station or a given stream. Well, that's really unfortunate to me because uh, uh, the radio station that I work at does an excellent job at a morning program. And I like to listen to it in the mornings. And so in the past, what I've had to do is I just open the web UI and I manually start that playback stream. And that's what I listen to when I'm in the shower and getting ready for the day. Well, I wanted to automate that process because it's the same station I listen to every day, and I want it to turn on when I get up, and then I want it to shut off when I leave the house so it's not just blaring for the rest of my family while I'm gone. And I couldn't find a way to do that in the UI. So I dug into under the system because, again, Volumio, running on a Raspberry Pi, you can just SSH in. So I SSH in. You do have to enable that through the UI. But I was able to find the data directory, and inside of the data directory, I found the playlist file and noticed that the playlist file is very similar, if not identical, to the web radio files which control the streams. And so I just copied the web radio that I wanted, the, the stream that I wanted to use, into a playlist file and named it KNOX Playlist. And now I was able to go back into Volumio, and when I when tri- when I when I fire that playlist, it plays the radio station that I wanted to hear. Well, now that I had a playlist, I can command a playlist to play based with the curl commands and so i use a script to play that web radio so the tone plays to wake me up in the morning then it turns on the radio plays for 15 20 minutes whatever uh and then when it's time for me to get into the when it's time for me to actually get out of bed and start my day it plays another tone to remind me then returns back to the radio and uh and it, and it kind of goes back and forth the nice thing about these curl commands is they allow me to stop the playback clear the cue turn off the repeat function load the tone Increase the volume so that it 's loud to actually wake me up, play the tone, then shut back off the tone and uh and return to listening to my stream at a, at a reasonable level so i 'll include that script, check it out if you 're interested. I think it 's pretty cool also inside of Grand Forks, I noticed I had two different calls from people in this area. I want to make you aware of an event that is happening software Freedom Day, and we are going to be hosting one here in right in grand forks it 's going to be over at Gamble Hall at the moment. Uh, the plans are subject to change if for any reason we have to change them. But right now it's at Gamble Hall. You can learn more at softwarefreedomday.org map. Our event is registered there. We'd invite you to come out. We'd invite you to get some experience. We're going to have a bunch of cool things there. We're going to have, I'm going to have my selfish OS device there. I'm going to have a bunch of laptops running Linux. I'm going to have a couple different Linux servers that we use. I'll probably have things like a Volumeo system. I'll have a Raspberry Pi loaded with Kodi. Um, we'll have the NVIDIA Shield. Some of the technology that you is us talking about in the program, if you want to see it in real life, my, fu- my friend and uh, co I guess host of the Grand Forks Linux user group is Peter Denart is going to be there with me and uh, we're just going to make a day of it and we're going to have some installation media handy so if you want to bring a laptop that you'd like loaded uh, with Linux by some professionals we're going to offer that service for free so we'll help you do the install or we'll do it for you. Um, Obviously we'll have some blank flash drives that we'll be able to download a distro of your choice Uh, so we really want to help get people interested in Linux and so if you're interested in attending that event check it out at software. Freedom day.org. We would love to have you stop by and and visit with us. We're going to try and get some pizza and some uh, some food and some drinks that will be available. So you'll have some refreshments if you just want to come out and hang out and and, and chillax and, and talk with us. We'd love to have that. It's not necessary to bring anything to do, um, but we will have some activities and, and, and things to hang out. We just want to invite a, an opportunity to to hang out. Also, there was a massive announcement in Destination Linux this week. So I want you to go back and listen to that show I was going to play the announcement. In, in this week's episode and then I realized how much time that would take up of my, my whole show and I, I didn't want to just repeat that, that episode. Plus, it's, it's a good show so you check it out aside from that. So head over to DestinationLinux.org and, uh, and check out that massive, massive announcement. It's big and I promise it's worth you guys uh, looking into. Hey, the Ask Noah show, this show meets every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We'd invite you to join us We'll continue next week. If you want to stay up to date with the latest, visit us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. We'll see you next Tuesday at AskNoahShow.com.